Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Hey, welcome along to Gateway this morning. If you're visiting with us, we extend to you a really warm welcome. If you're a regular, glad that you're with us again. Um, I've been doing a series over the last few Sunday mornings that we've entitled uh, One God, One Story, One People. And um, I don't want to go right back over the whole to kind of introduce it to you if you happen to be new with us this morning. The podcasts are available, but very quickly we've been talking about the fact that the Bible is not a whole lot of uh, independent independent stories, you know, some kind of real strange stories, just all mixed up, a mosaic of stories, but that it is one grand narrative. And out of that narrative, um, our worldview questions, who am I, what am I doing here, what's gone wrong with the world, how can it be fixed, where is it heading, what time is it, Um, those questions are answered by the great stories. And the Bible is a story that answers those questions. Every culture has its stories and attempts to answer those questions. Even if it's like our postmodern world when it says, hey, forget all those big stories. There are no big stories. Live your own story. That is a story, okay? Um, How well it answers those key questions that everybody uh, asks, of course, is a moot point. Um, So I've suggested to you that the, the story is like a, a play with a number of acts. First act, act one, is creation. Act two is the fall, what's gone wrong with the world. Act three is the election of Israel as God begins to act in and through Abraham's seed to reverse the sin of Adam. So this is redemption initiated. Act four is Jesus, and that's the king who comes to bring redemption. Act five is the people of God on mission. Act six is the consummation of redemption in the new heavens and the new earth. And we are looking at the Bible as a story like that. You can't simply break into act four as if it's act one and assume that, for example, Jesus is starting a completely new story with nothing from the first three acts that really mean anything anymore. A lot of Christians seem to have bought into that way of thinking. That is why, for example, they never or very rarely read the Old Testament, maybe apart from Psalms and Proverbs. They just don't see the relevance of the story. But the reality is without the the first three acts, you're always going to misunderstand Act 4, 5, and 6 because they are really found, those acts are foundational to the ongoing part of the story. Jesus does not break the story and head it off in a new direction. He is the fulfillment of the story thus far and the pivot of the story going forward. It is the story of the one God and his one people bringing redemption to to the, the created order. That's, how this, that's, that's what this story is really all about. So we've covered that up to this point. I want to talk to you this morning about Paul and the one story. Because if the story doesn't get broken by Jesus, there are a lot of people who think Paul broke the story. That it was Paul that really started Christianity off in a completely new and in some places quite anti-Jewish direction. 
they will describe Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus as taking an individual deeply embedded in one story and radically relocating him in a completely, totally different story. The word that we would use is a, a total paradigm shift from one worldview to a completely different worldview. In this manner of thinking, we see Paul leave behind the Jewish story, become the foremost proponent of an entirely new story that in, as I said, some places seems quite anti-Jewish. However, as you study Paul's writing, it's clear that that's not an accurate picture of the man or his thinking. His conversion experience, Paul's conversion experience, didn't have the effect of making him reject his Jewish story so that he invented an entirely new story and thereby a new religion. That conversion didn't sweep the map, the Jewish map, off the table and replace it with something quite different for Paul, a fresh, essentially non-Jewish revelation, as it were. Paul did not stop being Jewish and did not stop being a Jewish thinker. In fact, as you read him, you see that he remains a deeply Jewish theologian who in the light of his encounter with the Messiah and then subsequently with the Holy Spirit, rethought and reworked his native Jewish theology and story. And that's where I want to go with this this morning. I want to just acknowledge um, Bishop N.T. Wright and his book, Paul and the Faithfulness of God. If you ever do get a chance to read it, it's kind of like 16, 1700 pages. It's not exactly easy to read. It comes in two volumes, but it is actually a profound, profound work. N.T. Wright notes that there are three great pillars of of Jewish thinking, theology, and thereby practice. And they were, number one, monotheism, which is one God. Number two, election, which is the choosing of the one people. And number three, eschatology, which is the future or the one future or story for God's people. Paul does not reject those three great pillars of the story thus far. He reaffirms them as a continuing part of the story, but Jesus, as clearly we would expect, throws new light on those pillars for Paul and for the early church. N.T. Wright says, Paul's theology is a revision of Jewish theology rather than a scheme drawn from elsewhere as advocates of a non-Jewish Paul have regularly supposed. So all that to say, Paul does not set off in a completely new direction, turning his back on the story so far. He sees himself, at least in some respect, as a prophet who is announcing the fulfillment of the promises in the early part of the story. That's why he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, all the promises of God find their yes in him. Now, look, I said, talked about this last week, but what promises are we talking about? Well, the promises to Abraham, the promises of the covenant made to David, the promises concerning the Messiah. Paul is saying all of those promises find their fulfillment in Jesus. Paul reaffirms the great pillars of, mon- of, 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 of the Jewish story. He reaffirms monotheism, one God. Although, obviously, through Jesus, it's a monotheism that is freshly revealed. He reaffirms election, the choosing of Abraham's seed, for a particular rescuing purpose, to reverse the sin of Adam, as it were. 
this is the one people, but for Paul, it is the people of God freshly reworked. Then Paul also reaffirms his Jewish eschatology, the future of this story, God's future for the world. However, because of his encounter with Jesus and the Holy Spirit, it is an eschatology, it is a story that is freshly reimagined. So what I want to do is look at those three great pillars and how Paul sees them. We're going to spend more time on the second one than the first two, but let me than the first and the last, rather. Let me very briefly, though, talk about Paul's reimagining or the, the fresh revelation of monotheism. You're all aware that the Jewish people and their theology and scriptures are strictly monotheistic. That is, there is only one God. That's why they pray that prayer that we call, you know, famously know as the Shema. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. And they pray it daily, sometimes many times a day, that reaffirmation that there is only one God. And there are any number of passages that we could go to in the scripture that confirm that idea. The book of Isaiah abounds with declarations that there is only one true God. For example, in Isaiah 45, I am the Lord and there is no other beside me. There is no, there is no other God. Besides me, there is no other God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Now I want to say here without investigating this in any detail, since we have done it in a series that I did a couple of years ago on the Trinity, that the Old Testament doesn't reveal a God that is absolutely mathematically, numerically one as Islam proclaims. When, when you look at the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament, you can actually see Trinitarian footsteps all over the old part of the story. The, the ancients referred to it as vestigium trinitatis, the, the vestiges of the Trinity. You, you could see it. The Trinity that wasn't so much taught directly. Uh, it wasn't so much heard as it was like overheard. It wasn't taught directly, but it's inferred indirectly. G.K. Chesterton, in his poem, The Ballad of the White Horse, wonderfully wrote, The meanest man in grey fields gone behind the set of sun, heareth between star and other star, through the door of darkness fallen ajar, the council eldest of all things that are the talk of the three in one. The overhearing, as it were, of the doctrine of the Trinity in the, in the Old Testament. But when Paul and the early disciples encountered Jesus and then later the Holy Spirit, they were forced to reflect on their idea of monotheism in the light of this new revelation that they'd received. You have to understand this revelation comes to Jewish people who are not polytheists. They don't have a shelf with all kinds of gods that can easily be rearranged. They are strictly monotheistic. They are not prone to bow down before anything and worship anything. But almost immediately, Jesus behaves in ways that totally shocks them and forces them to rethink their understanding. He did things and he said things that through any other life and any other lips would have been considered totally blasphemous or completely insane. He readily received people's worships. He forgave their sins. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He claimed to be equal with the Father. 
He claimed for himself the great I am title that was revealed to Moses in the burning bush. And the book of John is all about Jesus saying, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And the people understood what he was saying and picked up stones. They said he's making himself God. And he really did. Jesus and later the Holy Spirit revealed to these disciples, revealed to Paul, a Trinitarian community. One God, one in essence, but three in persons. Now, Paul was not forsaking his monotheism and starting a new branch of the Jewish religion that was tritheistic or polytheistic. The early church is totally committed to monotheism. There's one God. If I can put it this way, it sounds a bit crass, but one what and three who's. In essence, these three who's are identical, co-eternal, co-equal, yet in persons distinct, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus and later the Holy Spirit did all kinds of things that a first century Jewish person would expect Yahweh to do. And in identifying Jesus and the Holy Spirit as accomplishing the works that Yahweh would do, the early disciples, and especially Paul as probably the foremost theologian of those early years, radically rethought and redefined that great Jewish pillar of monotheism. It didn't constitute a radical break in the story thus far. It's all done with Jewish language, with Jewish imagery, with Jewish intent. In fact, it is a continuation, if you like, an expansion due to this revelation of the previous story. As Wright says, it's monotheism freshly revealed. Now, the second great pillar of the Jewish theology and practice was election. And here we're dealing with the thorny question of who are the people of God? It really does address itself to the questions are there more than one group of people that can be called the people of God, that can be rightly titled the elect or Abraham's seed? Who is it that constitutes Abraham's seed? And as I've alluded to in this series, probably a bit overdramatically, this is where things can get undone really quickly. This is where people get intensely, incredibly passionate about the subject. When you start to discuss the people of Israel and their connection or lack of with the church, it creates intense interest and not a little passion and heat among people. In actual fact, it amounts to, um, particularly in the American setting, a minefield in evangelical thinking. And very few people who venture into the minefield get out with at least some shrapnel wounds if they get out at all. To question anything with regard national Israel's present behavior, right to the land or place in God's end time purposes is likely to be called a anti-Semitic, heretical, or maybe even worse. And yet the reality is we have to be able to have those discussions. We have to be able to have them with some civility. We have to be able to have them and in a way say, be like the Bereans, you know, the church at Berea, who searched the scripture daily to see whether these things were so. We have to be able to search the scriptures and ask questions without being attacked and vilified and labeled as anti-Semitic. So... We are going to wander into a minefield and see what happens. And we are going to explore how Paul, having encountered Jesus and the Holy Spirit, began to think about this theological pillar called election. 
But before I do that, I want to come right to our time and want to look at some categories in terms of the way you guys might think about this problem or this thorny issue of who is God's people, what role do national and ethnic Israel have in that, in that purpose. This is basically to help you identify, if you need to know where you sit on these issues, it's to help you identify where you sit or think or, or even perhaps don't think about these issues. And, and I'm very aware that there are younger believers among us who aren't impacted by this topic at all. It's absolutely not on their radar in the same way that it was on mine as a new believer. Um, at the full staff meeting on Tuesday last week, um, they asked me if I would sort of delve into this a little bit more and talk about it a bit more. And so we spent sort of 45 minutes discussing where I was going to go with this, um, with this talk. And one of the younger staff members said it was the longest discussion she had ever had on Israel in her faith journey. And, and that's not a bad reflection on her. That's just simply that on many people's radars, it does not exist. Another member of staff suggested to me that if the younger generation do talk about Israel and the Middle East at all, they are much more likely to come down on the side of the Palestinians and, and raise the issue about justice than they are simply to flop onto the side of, of ethnic Israel, which I thought was kind, kind of interesting because... A, for my generation, Israel has always been paramount and right in the center of our theology. I mean, 1956, 1967, 1973, the wars that raged in Israel, these were going on as some of us were, were new believers. And so we were very quickly forced to take some issues regarding these things. There are some groups of theology that would suggests that God has completely finished with Israel, that there has come a break in the story and that there are now no ongoing purposes with regard to these people. And they'll quote uh, parables like the parable of the husbandman where it, it finishes up where Jesus says, and God's kingdom will be taken from you and it will be handed over from a people different from you who will live out a kingdom life and bring forth the fruits thereof. They, they might also raise the issue that Jesus cleansed the temple several times and the last time he walked out and he turned to them and he said, your house will be left unto you desolate. And, and it's as if he is breaking from the story thus far and saying the people of that part of the story have no more place in the purposes of God. This is sometimes called replacement theology. The theological word, if you're interested, is supersessionism. And the diagram looks something like this. The story of Israel suddenly... Not there. Oh, okay. My, my diagram has disappeared. Um, divinely erased to show you all it's completely wrong. <laughs> There's a line that... Go Are the others there, Elizabeth? No diagrams. Okay. All right. Well, there you go. I'm, uh, Roxy, obviously, is not in my drawings. Um, a line of Israel, a complete break in the story, the Gentile church going from that point with, with no continuity between that story and this story. According to this scheme of thinking, the Jewish people have little or perhaps even no place in the church. 
If that's the case, one has to say Paul and the other early Jewish disciples and believers were lucky to make it in before the door slammed shut. Um, that is an extreme view, and it has really held sway in the church for long periods, the 4th and 5th century for a short time, and of course in Nazi Germany in 1930s through 1940s. They definitely would have taken that role. Now, there's a different form of supersessionism that's nowhere near as anti-Semitic as that replacement theology is, but it effectively produces the same radical break in the story. People who sit in this school of interpretation would say that what happened in Jesus, the coming of Jesus constituted such a radical inbreaking, such a divine invasion into the world that it rendered redundant anything and everything that had gone before. Not just the Jewish religion, but everything that smacked of religion was finished in Jesus. Sometimes you'll hear people say that Jesus brought an end to religion. And, and you, know, you can understand what they're saying to a point. But what happens with that is, again, everything is simply swept away and you have a completely new, fresh story, a new religion. Now, there's another form of approaching Israel. This one you will have heard of, even if you don't know it by the name that I'm going to call it. This kind of thinking is very pervasive in 20th, 21st century evangelical circles, and it, it, it's born out of what we call the dispensational approach to scriptures. And without unfolding it in detail, and some of you who are dispensationists will say, this is an unfair caricature, and I, I grant that simply because of time. But, but what it says effectively is that God has two distinct people. There's physical Israel, Abraham's seed, who, according to Romans chapter 9, were given the law, the land, the temple, the promises, the glory, the Messiah. So the Messiah comes to this people. All of the story thus far is about God's dealing with this people, the presentation of the Messiah. The Messiah offers them the kingdom and this physical seed of Abraham, turn away and refuse the promised kingdom. So God turns from this people, not permanently, simply temporarily. He postpones the promises that he's made to this people, and he interrupts the story with brackets, with a parenthesis. You've probably heard it said, the Jewish prophetic clock stops ticking. And God shifts his focus now to a completely different other people, his spiritual people, his heavenly people, the church. So the church age is a kind of a parenthesis in the story. The technical term is an intercalation. Once, once they, this kind of thing, it says, once the fullness of the Gentiles come in, once God has got all of the people in his church that he plans to have, then he will close the brackets the church will be removed by, by rapture, and then God will take up his unfinished dealings with national ethical Israel. So this dispensational approach makes a very clear distinction between physical Israel and, and the church. They are two different people groups with two different sets of promises and destinies. God is then pursuing two distinct purposes, one related to an earthly people with earthly objectives and one related to a heavenly people with heavenly objectives. Now, as I mentioned, many people who may not have 
heard much of the term dispensational. Nevertheless, I suspect you are influenced by that scheme of thinking. In many evangelical circles, there is huge interest in and passion for the, the nation of Israel. As it flows into Christian circles, this idea is sometimes termed Christian Zionism. So people who are of this persuasion, um, for them, Israel's existence as a nation is a miraculous fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and a sure sign of the near coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So John Warvord, who is a dispensational writer, says, modern-day Israel constitutes a preparation for the end of the age, the setting for the coming of the Lord for his church, and the fulfillment of Israel's prophetic destiny. Their, their right to the land of Israel is assumed to be divine and therefore sacrosanct, and, and you know, uh, the Palestinian claim, the Arab claim to that piece of land, um, is just, um, is, I don't even know what to say, is not recognized because the land has been given by divine fiat to this people. Uh, some teach further that at some stage in the future, a new temple will be rebuilt on the dome of, where the Dome of the Rock presently stands and that there could possibly be a revival of Levitical priesthood and perhaps even animal sacrifices. Now, all of you have probably heard this, but at some time in the future, uh, a person called the Antichrist will come, very powerful political ruler, and initially will make a covenant with the ancient people of Israel, allowing them to worship Yahweh. But after a brief period, uh, he will break that covenant and violate the temple, doing something that is called the abomination of desolations. There will then be a time of tremendous persecution against these people called the Great Tribulation, uh, and it will look like Israel is totally about to be totally destroyed before Jesus comes with his heavenly people, the church, and saves Israel. Now, many of you will be familiar with this scenario at some, at some degree. Um, you will be aware, I'm sure, and I've mentioned it before, the Left Behind series by... Um, LaHaye and can't remember the other guy's name. Uh, Hal Lindsay's the late great planet Earth. If you listen to Chuck Missler, Chuck Smith, and a dozen and one other teachers of the Bible, this is where they are coming from in in various forms and strengths. To question some or all of this is honestly uh, to be labelled a heretic in some circles. Um, but but. It's really needful that we look at the scriptures and say, is this what the New Testament teaches? Um, at the extreme end of the spectrum are people who are so passionate about national Israel that in the way they communicate, you'd swear and declare it's better to be or more advantageous to be an unsaved Jew than it is to be a born-again follower of Jesus. Some would say that the, that the Jewish people don't need saving. In fact, if you've been following the news, you'll know that Pope Francis said exactly this uh, probably two months ago, uh, where he affirmed um, the teaching of the Second Vatican Council, which states, Jewish people continue to be God's chosen people, that their religion remains for them a source of divine grace. 
It's not only the Catholics who went that way. The Church of Scotland, the General Assembly says this, the continuing place of God's people, Israel, within the divine purpose. Uh, within the divine purpose. Jews cannot be treated by Christians as unbelievers, but only as brother believers with whom they are privileged to share a common faith in God and the same promises of salvation. Now, when you hear the Pope, who, by the way, I massively respect for his uh, stand on social justice issues and, and um, I think has done many wonderful things for, for the Catholic Church. Um, just a funny backstory, I may have told you this, I'm not sure, but a, a while ago, Neve was much smaller. She's probably only about four or five, just when the Pope became Pope. She came out one morning and said to her mum and dad that she wanted to be a Catholic. And um, when they questioned her as to why she had made this sudden turn and decided to not be a Protestant but be a Catholic, she said, because I really like Pope Francis. So there you go. Even the, even the little kids recognize something of the incredible passion for justice that this man has that is laudable. But uh, on this point, you know, I, I just... It, it, for me... These views say not only are there two distinct people of God, but now there are two different ways of salvation. The Jews don't have to be saved in the same way that you and I have to be saved. Their religion provides the means for them uh, to divine grace. So we now have two different people and two different ways of salvation. And I don't know how that strikes you, but for me that is profoundly troubling. And one wonders what Bible these people are reading. And if they are reading Paul, they certainly aren't reading Paul in the way that I'm reading Paul. We'll, we'll get to this a little more as we unfold it. But with that as a background, okay, and it's taken me nearly all my time to do the background before we even launch into this. When I finish this, by the way, my normal sermon series on um, my iPad is about 28 pages. Um, this is 72, okay? <laughs> Now, granted, because of my eyesight, there are only four words on a page. It's not, as bad. It's, it's not as bad as it sounds. But with that as a background, we come to the question, so what does the Bible say about Abraham's seed? Who are the people of God in this age? And does God have more than one people? How do ethnic Israel and the church relate in God's purposes? And does God have unfinished business with the nation of Israel? When you consider that subject about Abraham's seed, and you go back into the Old Testament, you are very quickly made aware of something right at the start of the story. And it's this. Abraham's seed seems to be considered, seems to be chosen along lines that are not solely about blood and physical descent. God seems to have decided to work his strange purposes by means of not only choosing one family from the whole human race, but choosing members of that family, continuing that practice of choosing some and not others within the chosen family itself. Without going into detail and deeply into the story, we see right at the beginning of the story that physical descent is not the sole consideration. Isaac is chosen, but Ishmael has not, yet they are both physical descendants of Abraham. It includes Jacob, but it doesn't include Esau. 
So we see right at the start of the story, the promised seed goes along lines other than simply physical descent. It goes along the lines of faith and obedience, even at this part of the story, rather than simply physical relations. Let me skip to Romans where Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 9, and he says this, from the outset, not all Israelites of the flesh were Israelites of the spirit. It wasn't Abraham's sperm that gave identity here, but God's promise. Remember how it was put, your family will be defined by Isaac. That means that Israelite identity was never racially determined by sexual transmission, but it was God determined by promise. Remember that promise, when I come back next year at this time, Sarah will have a son. And that's not the only time Paul goes on. To Rebecca also, a promise was made that took priority over genetics. When she became pregnant by our one-of-a-kind ancestor Isaac, and her babies were still innocent in the womb, incapable of good or bad, she received a special assurance from God. What God did in this case made it perfectly plain that his purpose is not a hit or miss thing dependent on what we do or don't do, but a sure thing determined by his decision flowing steadily from his initiative. God told Rebecca, the firstborn of your twins will take second place. So here's Abraham. All Israelites are not really all Israelites. There's an Israel of the flesh. There's an Israel of the spirit. The promise goes along lines of faith and obedience and God's choosing. It is not simply physical descent. So that's, the, that's right at the beginning of this whole issue of Abraham's seed. And it's interesting, but through the remainder of the story, anybody who was a Gentile outsider could step in and be part of this family. They could become fully-fledged Jews even though there was no physical descent. All they had to do was profess the God of Abraham and submit to the boundary marker, the covenant sign, which was that the males were circumcised. So even at this early part of the story, we recognize that no racial barrier exists to keep the Gentiles from becoming full participants in the covenant promise of being Abraham's seed. One Jewish commentator, Benno Jacob, stated circumcision turned a man of foreign origin into an Israelite. Now, the contrary is also true. It was possible, although being physically circumcised, to live in a manner that God would ultimately reject and that they could be exiled from the family. Later in the story, God's physical people, the physical descendants of Abraham are expelled from the land because of their ongoing disobedience and rebellion, and they're exiled into Babylon. And God declares through the prophet Hosea, they are lo ami. You are no longer my people, he says. I disown you. Being physically descendant from Abraham carries no guarantee that a person would remain among God's covenant people without any consideration of their faith and faithfulness to the conditions of that covenant. So this is the early part of the story, all through the story. Actually, all through the story, we see the large mass of those who are physically descendant from Abraham were actually marked by disobedience and rebellion. And there was a smaller group, a group within the group, an Israel within Israel, an Israel of the spirit within Israel of the flesh that were called the remnant. And Isaiah talked of them often. And he said, those are the true seed of Abraham. That's the, that's the background 
Okay, now we've covered it very quickly, but that's the background that we bring to Paul's thinking. Remember, he is a Jewish thinker, a Jewish theologian. In keeping with and in a development of that principle already in play from the earlier part of the story, Paul talks about the fact that Abraham's seed is not about physical descent. It's never been about physical descent. But Paul goes on in a breathtaking manner to redefine Israel in even a clearer way. He says it's not about circumcision. It's not about physical descent. Circumcision was the boundary marker that marked you as Abraham's seed, as the people of the covenant. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 2. I'm reading from the message. Circumcision, the surgical rite that marks you as a Jew, is great if you live in accordance with God's law. But if you don't, it's worse than not being circumcised. And the reverse, he says, is also true. The uncircumcised who keep God's ways are as good as the circumcised, in fact, better. Better to keep God's law uncircumcised than break it circumcised. Don't you see, he says, it's not the cut of a knife that makes you a Jew. You become a Jew by who you are. It's the mark of God on your heart, not the knife on your skin that makes a Jew. This is a radical redefinition of Jewishness. We've seen it in the story thus far, but now he focuses on it. Physical descent, outward circumcision, without a heart response to God and subsequent obedience in one's life are, according to Paul, of absolutely no salvific value. He says, doesn't count. Conversely, if a heart is turned to the Lord and a life of obedience is lived out without, without any physical descent, or without any marks of outward circumcision. He says that will not stop a person being considered as Abraham's seed, as belonging to God. So Paul says that true Jewishness and true circumcision are not outward realities, but spiritually they are inward ones. He goes further. In his letter to the Galatians, he clearly states that membership in God's people is not determined now by ethnicity, by physical descent, but he says by new creation. Listen to this, Galatians chapter 6. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but new creation. The Old Testament mark of identity now has no meaning and no significance. The only thing that establishes a person as a member of God's family of Abraham's seed is for a person to experience new creation by the power of the Holy Spirit, by grace, through faith. N.T. Wright says, the central argument and thrust of the letter to the Galatians is the redefinition of election around Jesus the Messiah. The whole of the book of Galatians is about who's Abraham's seed. You can read it. But in that letter, and I'm drawing this part to a close. I'm only up to page 35, so we've got a bit to go. He introduces Abraham into the debate in chapter 3, and he grapples in that chapter with who exactly constitutes Abraham's seed. This is important. Because he's just had a massive confrontation with Peter, a public confrontation with Peter, who has turned away from eating with the Gentiles and is eating with the Jews. And Paul sees at risk the one family. It's about to be broken up. 
and he's addressing this situation. And this is what he says in verse 3. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And he's saying, faith is what gets you into Abraham's family. And that the family of Abraham is the worldwide family of faith. That faith no longer circumcision, is now the boundary marker of God's one family. And look how he finishes that chapter. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Listen, that is devastatingly, compellingly clear. If you're in Christ... You're a member of Abraham's family. You are Abraham's seed. You are narrated into that story that said, I will choose Abraham, and through his seed, we will reverse the sin of Adam. It's not the only place that, that says that. Abraham's promised seed is determined by, may, by, by faith in the Messiah, by being in Christ. Quickly, a couple more scriptures, and then we'll stop. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. Paul says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We, we are the circumcision who worship God according to the Spirit. It's not a mark on your body. It's, some, it's an inward reality, born of faith, flowing out in obedience and worship. To the Colossians, he writes this, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Whenever you find that phrase, made without hands, he's saying something God did. Remember, Jesus said, I'll make a temple, I'll rebuild a temple, it'll be a temple without hands. It'll be something that God does. And he says to these Gentile believers, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Membership in Abraham's family is a matter of faith. It's a matter of being in Christ. It's a not a matter, and never has been, by the way, of physical descent or outward rituals and marks. Now, these don't necessarily hinder a person who has the inward reality to go with the outward marks. In other words, ethnic Jews are welcome. But if you don't have physical descent and you don't have any of the marks, one is not hindered. In other words, Gentiles are welcome. You could say, well, yeah, okay, I, I get where you're coming from, and the scripture does seem to be clear, but couldn't God still have two families? Might he still have an earthly people and a spiritual one? I've got two scriptures to read to you, and then we're done, okay? The first is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Quite a long reading, but listen to it. Paul is writing to largely a Gentile congregation in the city of Ephesus, and he says this. 
Don't take any of this for granted. It was only yesterday that you were outsiders to God's way and had no idea of any of this. Didn't know the first thing about the way God works. Hadn't the faintest idea of Christ. You knew nothing of that rich history of God's covenant and promises in Israel. They were outside of the covenants. You hadn't a clue about what God was doing in the world at large. Now, because of Christ, dying that death, shedding that blood, you who were once out of it altogether are in on everything. The Messiah has made things up between us so that we, we're now together on this, both non-Jewish outsiders and Jewish insiders. He tore down the wall we used to keep each other at a distance. He repealed the law code that had become so clogged with fine print and footnotes that it hindered more than it helped. Then he started over. Instead of continuing with two groups of people separated by centuries of animosity and suspicion, he created a new kind of human being, a fresh start for everybody. Christ brought us together through his death on the cross. The cross got us to embrace, and that was the end of the hostility. Christ came and preached peace to you outsiders and peace to us insiders. He treated us as equals and so made us equals. Through him, we both share the same spirit and have equal access to the Father, that's plain enough, isn't it? You're no longer wandering exiles. This kingdom of faith is now your home country. You're no longer strangers or outsiders. You belong here with as much right to the name Christian as anyone. God is building a home. He's using us all, irrespective of how we got here in what he is building. He used the apostles and prophets for the foundation. Now he's using you, fitting you in brick by brick, stone by stone, with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone that holds all the parts together. We see it taking shape day after day, a holy temple built by God, all of us built into it, a temple in which God is quite at home. Now listen, you cannot read that and still be thinking two rather than one. I mean, it's, as I said, devastatingly, compellingly clear. You were once two, you are now one. I'm not sure if you can still see two in this, if you can still see a heavenly people and an earthly people, I'm not sure what to say to you, except perhaps to mention the possibility that you are reading into the text rather than reading out from it. Come back to Galatians for the last scripture. This whole letter, the main thrust, who are the seed of Abraham? Paul finishes up this letter about membership in God's family, and this is how he finishes it. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. What a stunning last phrase. The people who have partaken by grace in new creation are called by Paul the, the, the Israel of God. You say, well, Don, it seems to me that that word and upon the Israel of God could indicate that there are two groups of people, those who work by this rule of grace and faith, peace and mercy be upon them, and, of course, on this other group, the Israel of God. Well, that, that doesn't hold water. The, the phrase and actually, according to Stott, Gordon Fee, and a dozen and one other commentators should read even. Paul is not talking about two groups the people who have encountered new creation and the Israel of God, he is saying they are one and the same group. The people who have encountered new creation, even the Israel of God. Do you know what? Stunning as it seems, we Gentiles have been narrated 
into the story of Israel. And Paul says, and you are the Israel of God. This is not replacement theology. It's inclusion theology. We Gentiles have been narrated into this one story. And we'll go through next week and develop it a bit more because it's, it's, there's more passages than this that outline this story. This is the story of the one God with one story and one people. And I know the implications of it are profound. And quite frankly, over the last probably 15 years, I've done a complete switch on how I think about the Israel of God and, and even the nation of Israel. I, I do want to say emotionally I am very pro-Israel as a nation. I, I believe they have a right to be in a land unmolested. The fact that everybody seems to hate the living daylights out of them does seem to me to indicate something of God's ancient purposes on them that has stirred the hatred of Satan. I, I don't have any problems with that. But I have massive problems with, um, with people who say, listen, these people have their own way to God. You, you can't read the passage of the olive tree that we'll look at next week and say something like that. Because Paul is not saying these people have their own relationship with God. There is one olive tree into which you and I as Gentiles have been grafted and which natural branches, because of their unbelief, have been cut out. And Paul does say they can be grafted back in. It's easy for them to be grafted back in, but they are grafted back into one tree to one family. There isn't two trees. There isn't two families. There is not two ways to God. God has one story and one people, and you and I, by grace have been narrated into it, for which we should be eternally thankful. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.